Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Today we have on Katora Stakan, who Stacy and I met in 2012. We were just talking about when we did Madam Butterfly together with Opera Santa Barbara. Those of you who listen to our podcast regularly know that this is the one that I bring up about like my first traditional show mess up that is scary every time I talk about it. <laughs> Anyways, Katora, we were talking about this earlier and she says we all go through those moments, so I feel less bad about it. But she's an, an opera director with an emphasis on new works and French rep. She's worked on premieres such as Moby Dick in 2019 and It's a Wonderful Life. Was Moby Dick 2019? 2010. 2010. Oh my God. I was like, that is not correct. 2010 and A Wonderful Life. <laughs> In 2016, along with a number of other world premieres, she's known for taking apart text and finding what's inside, which I assume is what led her to her own podcast called Words First, Talking Text and Opera. She's on a mission to present opera honestly and maintain a continued cultural relevance, which I believe she's doing really well, especially considering she's one of the few directors who's worked in 2020 by doing the drive-in La Boheme in San Diego Opera. Congratulations on having a contract in 2020. We are all both of you. Welcome to our podcast. It was really awesome to have you on. And I mean, you and I have chatted some through the last couple of years, but um, I don't think you've seen Stacey since 2012. No, so. we no were just that's what we were just that. saying. I just don't <laughs> hear what so she's crazy. doing through you. <laughs> it's awesome to be on here. Thank you both. So what, to get started, what led you to become a director? Because I know it wasn't quite a, it wasn't a direct path to get no, there. It was not a straight line. And 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 I don't, I'm not sure anybody who directs is a straight line. I think we all sort of start out with this performer's dream, this, you know, my dream was to be a ballerina. And uh, so I was a dancer as a kid and I did musical theater and, and some straight theater, a lot of musical theater, danced in theater and then did concert dance, ballet, modern jazz, tap, that kind of thing. And uh um, I went to college, got my degree in modern dance, and while I was there, dancers, you know, it, dancers, it's said they have two deaths. They die at the end of their career, and then they die in, when they actually die, because because dancers' careers, first of all, it, it dance encompasses your life in a way that is hard to express. Uh, it's it, it, it doesn't stop. I mean, I think all the arts do, but dance particularly just gets in your muscles in a way that it doesn't leave when you're when you're in the middle of a career. So, so, but dancers careers are short. So most of us, when we're in the midst of a dance career, somewhere in the back of our brain, we're thinking about what we want to do when we're no longer dancing. Um, about two years after I graduated from college, I got a job as a dance captain for Akhenaten at Chicago Opera Theater, which both started my love of opera and my love of contemporary opera. So that all happened at once. And I, um, I just fell in love with the medium. And I, I I remember being dancing in the middle of a chorus rehearsal and feeling that music, feeling that music, just crazy sound all around me. And I thought, okay, I never need to do anything other than opera ever again. And and that and it sort of hit me that when I when my dance career was over, my performing career was over, that I would move over into opera. I would start doing more work in opera. And I, I thought that meant choreography, but I have a degree in choreography. And I, I, I think by getting my degree in choreography, I realized that I didn't actually really want to be a choreographer. 
So uh, I still do it. I think I'm serviceable at it. I think I can put together a pretty good polka, but it's not my main emphasis. So I essentially, I as soon as I stopped dancing, I got in touch with some opera directors that I had been around having danced in opera and just said, I, I want to work with directors. I, I, I want to learn how to do this. And so I started working with Lillian Groag. She was actually the first, she and Harry Silverstein in, in Chicago at DePaul in Chicago were the first directors that I worked with as an assistant. And I just learned a ton from them and then started, well, then got in, uh, in with Leonard Folia and that's how I did Moby Dick. And slowly by working with all of these, these incredible directors, I, I learned more and more about the medium. I learned about the art form and then started doing my own work about five or six years later. So yeah, not a straight line, but, but I think once I found it, I, I, I was pretty sure of it. You know, I, I, I think I found my niche and I just, I just fell right into it. I love that Akhenaten was the one that did it for you because. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I could trace mine back. Stuff and I'm like, oh God, it's, why is it off feet? Oh, how many times are you going to repeat this? And Cindy's like, isn't this amazing? And my husband's like, do we have to listen to this again? I know. <laughs> I, you know, Akhenaten is one of those pieces, though, that I would never put it on and just listen to it just for the fun of it. But when you're in the middle of it and working on it, there's something about being in. And it was also, you know, it was one of those rare sort of love fest shows where mm -hmm. everybody working on it was so in love with each other that it's mm -hmm. just it could have been anything. I mean, honestly, it was the experience of making that show, I think, that that put me in love with Philip Glass's work more than the work itself. And now I've grown to appreciate Philip Glass in a way that, that that I, I never had before that, but his stuff is so it's, it's got this drive to it that I think dancers kind of glom onto in an interesting way, because it's got this underlying sort of constantly changing rhythm in our bodies. Yep. Just move to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Akhenaten was my first glass piece. Yeah. I've done a couple, but for me, it was John Adams is the one that I was like, yeah. this is what I'm going to do opera because of this, you know, and Nixon. Yeah, yes. Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. But there is, yeah. And I think that's why I also enjoy the new works and the more contemporary works because that was kind of what made me fall in love with it, you know? And it wasn't necessarily the traditional pieces that most people were brought up with or most people make their career in. So it's yeah, definitely, yeah. It's definitely new stuff. So, what we're going to jump quite a ways, but tell us about <laughs> speaking of traditional shows, but tell us about Bohem because. It was scheduled obviously way before COVID happened. So yeah. I'm sure you had a design and a plan and, and everything in place and then had to instantly switch. So what was that like? Yeah, the, the switch was pretty, you know, and actually the switch happened really late because we weren't sure. I, I mean, I think San Diego was just trying to weigh their options and figure out what was going on. I mean, I'd had yeah. that contract for almost three years. They had just purchased the sets and costumes from Opera de Montreal. So they were, I was kind of taking over the, that production and, and we were just going to do a very traditional bohem. Um, and, and so for me, it's interesting because for me, in thinking about that, I was like, oh, it's Bohem. I can think about that later. I know that show really well. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's traditional costumes, traditional sets. There's no surprises. There's no anything. And I'm just I'm just going to go in there and direct like a really solid Bohem 
that was what I was was on board with. And then all of a sudden COVID hit. And then I was just like, well, they're going to cancel it. But I didn't hear and I didn't hear. And at one point, my agent called me and said, have you heard from San Diego? Because you're still on the website. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm. Um, but they, they were just trying to figure out how they were going to do this. And I think David Bennett was just bound and determined to make it happen because he had this brilliant cast. I, you know, it's Joshua Guerrero. It was Anna Maria Martinez. It was original Angel Blue, but she she had to drop out. And so Anna Maria, who is equally amazing, came in. Um, Alexander Elliott, uh, Andrea Carroll. It's just these incredible voices, young, attractive looking cast. And I just think he was like, I'm not giving up this cast. This cast will be doing this OM. And so they started talking about how to do it. And, and California has such big restrictions. Even oh, yeah. then had such, I mean, right. Yeah, you know, like they had crazy restrictions. And now it's, I think it's even worse. I don't think we can do it right now. But at the yeah, time. Yeah, as of a week ago or when the podcast comes out, it'll be a couple weeks. Uh, we yeah. Back yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. And so they started talking about, you know, uh, E&O did a, uh, a drive-in Boehm in, in England and mm. totally different, modernized. They, they had it, they did it in a, like, you know, a bunch of hippies camping. And so they're in like, you know, Volkswagen buses and uh, all of that and it's sort of in the middle of this it's it's it was done differently but but the notion sort of stuck with with San Diego and they started talking about it and they started looking at places and then they got me involved and said so we're thinking about doing this thing at first we were going to use the course but cut the course way back and then put them on an outer stage so uh but then Agma came out with their uh their rules in order to be able to produce work and the thing that they said I'm like having a panic attack thinking about this. The thing that they said was that nobody, so from the singer's mouth, you had to be 15 feet away from the singer's mouth, the direction of the mouth, four feet on either side. So wherever the, the singer turned, it was 15 feet away with four feet on either side. And well, that just sort of completely eliminated the ability to have a chorus at all because no we would how could we build a stage that was big enough to accommodate that and and lighting you know, even eight eight chorus members would be like half the stage that's amazing well yeah yeah and it's just and and it's also you know it just it, after a while it, it was like why you know <laughs> so anyway they they called me and they said i think we're gonna have to eliminate the chorus and so i started working with bruce stasnia on just how we were gonna do that because act three is really easy you just like chop them out you like, yeah that's um, but but act two is so integrated and I, that was where i was starting to get my agita <laughs> I, like, I don't know how we're doing this um there was a little part of me that was so excited to not have to deal with the chorus in Act Two because I always find Bohem Act Two a total nightmare. So I was going to say, every, I think every director and stage manager is happy to not have the chorus in Act Two. Oh yeah, means. with it's like seven million entrances and everyone's screaming a different thing, and you've got to like put family groups together, you know. And and look, I love that stuff, but it still makes me crazy thinking about putting it together. It's also eighteen minutes long, and <laughs> I just spent twenty-four hours making an eighteen-minute scene. Um, <laughs> It's that it's like it's like the first act of of Rigoletto too. It's the same thing. Mm, it's yeah, exactly. It's just complete insanity. Um, Boheme is awful for. I mean, you know, it's just even worse backstage. I think because it's like prop hell in Act Two. It's, it's like all those shot of the guys selling the stuff on the side of the road and the bartender and all the food and the glasses. It's like well, it's I was like, gonna say you just had like a twenty four minute 
act change, you know, to, to change the scenery. And then you right. do a 19 minute act and then you do another 20 minute scene. I know, change you, have into the next you have to somehow figure out how to get off the stage again. I know it's crazy. <laughs> so, so we eliminated that. And, and actually, so then I, I started thinking, I started thinking like, how am I going to do this piece when they can't get, they can't get within 15 feet of each other. And it's a romance. You know, yeah. and it's a romance and it's, so I just, you know, my best ideas come in the shower. And so they gave me all the parameters. They told me what they were doing. Bruce sent his first notion of cuts and he was so smart about it. And and so, you know, it just, I, I started looking at it and I was in the shower and I just, all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, we could do this. I had been reading the, the Henri Merger stories, the, the, the um, primary source and, um, Henri Merger, he is Rodolfo, and he cast himself as that in the stories that he told. I mean, the stories are basically about his, you know, salad days in in the Latin Quarter of France, like playing like he's poor with his, you know, other friends who've run away from their rich families, and and um, and I just thought, well, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just set it exactly because it was written ten years after it was supposedly that it supposedly happened. Let's just set it 10 years after Mimi's death and we'll just tell it as a memory play. And, you know, it may be slightly, uh, you know, at first I was like, well, maybe it's too cheesy. And then I thought, no, these people can't touch each other. They can't get anywhere near each other. What am I supposed to do? I, you know, let's, I'm not, I refused to tell the story in like a, let's reach for each other and pretend that we're touching each other way. I just, by 15 feet apart yeah. from each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, it just feels so false. And I thought, you know, there's something about the fact that we're all stuck in these spaces where the only thing we can truly do is remember what it was like to hug somebody. Like, I mean, remember what it's like to hug my, my cousin, remember what it's like to, you know, shake hands with a, with some, you know, it's like, we, we have these touch memories that we can't get anywhere near right now. So I started thinking how, like, maybe this is actually more relevant than I'm giving it credit for. And so once I had that idea and I talked to David about it, David Bennett, and we just sort of, we went from there and it just became this whole notion of the fact that, well, first of all, we made Mimi a ghost. Because when we started talking about it more and more, we thought, well, like the one person that actually could come into his room, the one person that's not alive, the one person that actually can still be in his psyche in a very real way is, is Mimi. She's dead. Everybody else is a memory because they're ostensibly still alive 10 years later. And they, you know, they're, they just were remembering what they were. Mimi could be a presence for him in a very real way. And so Mimi goes in and out of memory, but she stays a ghost. She's in white. She's got this shawl. We were outdoors, so it just flowed in the wind. And um, so once we kind of put that story together, we set the whole thing in his office, which means he's the only one with props, which made it so much easier because that was one of the big things was the whole sharing props thing and like sharing seats, sharing furniture became this huge COVID protocol. Mm -hmm. And and once we sort of figured out like, okay, Rodolfo is the only one with props. We put the whole thing in his office. Everybody else is sort of off in the ether someplace in their own little space that they use. They have one piece of furniture so they can sit down if they need to, but otherwise they're in nothingness. And so we just, we, we experience them the way you experience somebody in a memory where you don't remember what they ate. You don't remember what, you know, what kind of chair they sat on or what 
what shopping bags they had with them. You remember their presence. You remember their laugh. You remember things they said. You remember that ridiculous, that time that your best friend had this ridiculous public display of affection with his ridiculous girlfriend. Like, right. this is the stuff that you remember, right? You don't remember what they ate for dinner. Um, so, so once we kind of went on that road, it just, it kind of, just made sense and you know we didn't have a set we had pulled some old posters from the old Bohem set the the John Conklin set that San Diego also owns and they had gotten rid of most of that set and still had just some of the big like Toulouse Lautrec type of thing mm -hmm. they put them on these spinners so that we could see the posters or just see the back of the posters so that we could be in different spaces so and uh and so we had our two uh, uh Collinet and, and Chonard would spin those into different configurations uh rodolfo had his props everybody else was without props um and uh and yeah it was and it was crazy i mean they built we were in a parking lot they built a stage they built a tent for the orchestra they built up uh plexiglass containers for all of the horn and woodwind players um they had to because we were right on the bay, they had to reinforce the stage in a way that they wouldn't have had to in other places because the bay winds would come in. And like... I bet that was fun for sound and orchestra. Oh my gosh. Well, but the sound, you know what though? The sound was the most genius thing. We didn't do, I, at first I was so, I was like, you're not going to amplify any of it. This seems very dangerous, but they had all of the singers had in ear and they didn't amplify. They had a couple of little monitors on stage, but for the most part, they heard everything they needed to in their ear. They didn't amplify the orchestra. They didn't amplify the singers. There was a sound guy, Ross Goldman, who was in his car with all of his mixer stuff. And he did a mix of the orchestra and the singers in his car that went directly into the FM radio. They had a transmitter and it went directly into the FM radios of all the cars that were there for the drive-in. It was awesome. And it was the best sounding. It sounded like a recording. Wow. It live. I, it was the best. That was the best decision they made. And I was, I, I, thankfully, they did not listen to me. And I just, I just let them go because I was like, please, like, I know nothing. Do your thing. And I work in opera. What do I know about sound design? And, and yeah, exactly. We never have to deal with it. Like, please. Um, but they, he just, that show sounded ridiculously good. It was just, it was amazing because you didn't get any feedback. There was no foldback coming in from, from monitors. You weren't. And, and then if you stepped outside of your car, you heard nothing. You heard the, the, the highway. And you heard a little bit of the singers and maybe some of the like timpani or something that was going on from the, but otherwise it was this weird, odd quiet that was sort of over the parking lot. And then you get back in your car and there you're blasted with Bohem. It was awesome. Wow. <laughs> that is really cool. I wonder how that worked with like. Even getting that, the FM. So <laughs> well, that, Even what? I mean, I've had to work getting... with that on the uh, movie premieres and stuff we've done out here, yeah. but like when you're waiting for an inch, well, I guess the actors all had it in their ears and there were no like scene changes or anything. So I guess the crew didn't really have to know when to get ready for a scene change. Yeah. Or... I mean, they, they, there were no scene changes. The crew, once the crew did preset, 
they were all they did was was basically sit backstage and wait to put the thing to bed and it was an 86 minute show so it's like it wasn't like a, a hell of a long time but they did that they drove because our dressing rooms we had dressing rooms inside the sports arena which was a it was a hike so they drove a golf they drove the singers on a golf cart back and forth um to get uh, they had to deal with the singers. Um, singers had uh, shields that they would bring um, that they had on their faces that they had to wear until the moment that they went on stage. So they would deal with like making sure that the the face shields were put in the right spots before they went on stage. Um, and they were there in case there was some sort of emergency, some, you know, the set fell down or something, which it never did. And, um, but there was a small feed, uh, of the FM transmitter of what was being heard through the FM transmitter in uh, behind the stage. So if you were standing behind the stage, you could kind of get up towards the, the, the stage itself and you could hear the show. But, um, but no, I mean, it was, for what it was, it was a very small crew. I mean, you know, we needed, we had two props people for the entire thing. And that was just for preset and takedown. Um, you know, wardrobe, I think was actually the biggest crew because, uh, you know, we had two people in wigs, um, and, you know, putting some makeup on and cause we're also doing makeup for film. You know, most of the people in those cars only saw it. We had six led movie screens all the way back and so most people only saw it in the screens because you know you you like see these little tiny ants that are running around on the stage when <laughs> there's 500 cars there so it's like you're not gonna you just you just don't see much so we had these screens and so i designed it i mean i had a full shot list that i given uh, paul ferrero was my my video director and he called the shots live um uh every wow. night live every night and and uh but we had a full script for him and and uh, a, a list of shots and um no it was really it it was really cool i i i wouldn't want to do it again just exactly like that but i'll have to tell you i fell in love with the way of telling this story so much that i'm 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 like trying to pitch it to other people because i think it's really actually an incredibly relevant way to tell Bohem now with people. I mean, it's just, it and it hits. So, you know, he couldn't fall on top of her body at the end. So, I mean, she, she, she walked away. She got up off the chaise. She walked away. She just disappeared down the back stairs. And when he turned around, he was in an empty room all by himself with the kufieta. And that was it. Like, that was the whole thing. Like he, he ended by himself in a room on his knees. Like, it was grief. It's, 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 it's a tale of, of, of grief, of lost opportunity of, you know, just all of that. And, um, and so I think it really, it was speaking to this audience right now. And um, I just feel like it, it became, I was using, it was such a form follows function way of telling the story. But then after doing it, I was like, oh no, this, this is cool. This makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. And we had, I mean, that's the thing. We had such a good time doing it. I mean, the masks suck we were in you know we were in a santa ana for rehearsals because we rehearsed outdoors so it was 105 degree heat and you know out 
in the desert and then we came back in and we're on the bay and everything's sopping wet constantly and you know we're trying to light with towels over our heads so we can like see the screen and in the daylight and I mean it's just it was ridiculous but we were also happy to be doing it that everyone was just in this like incredible mood I mean people were just ecstatic to have a gig so Mm -hmm. um, we could not work under those conditions in any sort of regular like people would eventually just kill each other (laughs) so how did that because you talked about the actors had to you know from them singing 15 feet away and four feet on either side how did tech work where you usually have like your lighting designer and and your like all the production team is right next to each other and focusing lights and doing make. How do you do makeup on someone when you have to stay, you're supposed to stay six feet away or have. Well, masks or yeah. You know, it's, that's a really good question. I, I was never there for the makeup, but I'm assuming that, you know, I know that the makeup artists and the wig designers, the wig people put, they had on masks and face shields. So they were in some significant PPE in order to, uh, um, in order to do what they needed to do. I know they wore gloves. I know. So they, they, that was how they worked that tech. I mean, you know, my AD and I, what was nice is that because it was a drive-in like for, for dress rehearsals, he was in one car on one side of the theater. I was in another car on the other side of the theater. And we just had an open, uh, it just, we just had an open comm and we, we were on a, 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 an exclusive channel and we just talked to each other the whole time so <laughs> that was kind of gr- I was like this is great I should just we should do this most <laughs> like other times too yeah um, you have but, your own I drink mean, holder you can adjust your AC totally. and roll down the I window lean like your chair back if I wanted to I could totally I was great I was in my own little enclosed place no one could come and like try to talk to me in the middle of the show it was <laughs> um, but I have to lighting was you know I, it, it I think certainly we we broke the six foot rule in some of our tech work, but for the most part, people were aware of it. And like, if you'd start talking to somebody and it, you'd both realize at the same time that you'd gotten closer than six feet, everybody would just sort of back up a little bit. You know? <laughs> um, but, uh, and we sat six feet apart at our tables. Um, we did find that taking and giving notes became difficult until we were on comm. Once we were, then we could actually talk to each other. But it was, and and tech crews, I mean, because there wasn't that much set up once the stage was built, um, it was pretty easy for them to be socially distanced the whole time. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was an interesting experience from that point of view, because as a director, I never wear these. I never wear cans as a director. And then uh, this time I had to, there was no way not to, because my lighting designer is 12 feet behind me and my AD is six feet over this way. And there's bay wind going like this and, you know, and, if I needed to talk to anybody, I needed to be able to, to talk into a, into a mic. So um, I did have a God mic at the rehearsals um, so that I didn't have to get up and get in people's face to talk to them. But what I realized is that no one could actually hear me. It just sort of faded into the, you know, whatever. So, yeah, uh, that didn't really work as well. But um, but no, I, I, I commend San Diego because they had a, they had protocol going in. It was incredibly detailed. They had a, uh, a COVID officer who was on top of it. And, and we had no cases. We, we had no cases the entire time. And that's, um, that's the people. Well, we, we, no, none of us wanted to get it. And we were just like we were pretty isolated from the rest of, you know, society and uh you know you're working all the time so it just it was what it was but we just 
everyone was sort of on board with the, we're just not going to give this to each other. And I think just the fact that we're all on the same page helped. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing on your Facebook feed talking about how you did notes, how you gave notes, because you were watching everything on the screen, right? As opposed to in person yeah. during tech. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, well, um, I, I didn't have many singer notes. These singers were so good. By the time we got to tech, I really actually had very little for the singers. Every once in a while, it was like, you know, you get, a, you're, you're turning towards her before she walks away from you. Please don't do that. You know, it was those type of things. Um, but no, I, uh, I reviewed dailies. I mean, I was so, um, it was so hard for me to deal with, you know, cause actually because our lighting time was just over rehearsals because they just didn't have the money having built the set. And I mean, having built the stage and everything, they didn't have the money to give us a, like overnights cause just the, mm-hmm. the personnel just, we wouldn't have been able to. So I spent most of my tech rehearsal dress rehearsals talking to Chris and trying Chris Wren with my lighting designer, trying to get the lights taken care of. And he was, he was fantastic, but, but that was where I, my, my, my focus was concentrated. And then I would get a recording of what my video director had called because, because that was the other big thing I wanted to make sure was working. And I would go home and the next morning, because, you know, we didn't do anything during the day really, because it's an outdoor theater. Um, the next morning I would sit down with my cup of coffee and the dailies and I would watch the show and I had a time code and I could sit and be like at, you know, two forty-seven. uh, I think we cut to Mimi a little early. And so I would give all these notes wow. that way. But the nice thing was, is that then if there were other singer things, all of a sudden I was like, wait, why is he doing that? Um, I, I, because I was reviewing the show in my own environment, I was able to actually really see what the singers were doing too and, and what was happening with that weird prop and why the, you know, it just, I feel like because my AD and I weren't right next to each other, I, it, it was hard in the moment to give notes, but having those dailies the next morning and being able to really look through them, I was able to give much more detailed notes than I would have been able to in that circumstance. So did you have... Did your AD also get the dailies and so you guys would like talk over things or? I don't think that he did. I, I, I'm, he may have had access to him, but I don't think he did. I, I got a thumb drive every night from Paul directly and I'm not sure what Alan ended up getting. So yeah, I didn't really, uh, Alan, once we got to tech, Alan was like dealing with light. I would give him a lot of stuff to do with lighting. Um, but for the most part, he gave lighting notes that I would give to him, but otherwise um, I was the one that ended up dealing with, with the dailies themselves. I'm not sure that, Alan, I know Alan once, once the show opened, Alan would get the thumb drive and then he would be able to give like video notes and stuff through the run. But yeah, I think it was all me. So you, you had a, or did you have a stage manager who was calling light cues only, I'm assuming. And then a, what do you call him? A video? Well, what did you call him? Video director. That, yeah. Video director who yeah. called all of the shots. So you had the two people yeah, kind so, of together. So Mike called the, um, he's our stage manager. He called all the light cues. 
he called uh he called a couple of sound up sound down cues for um you know and and a couple of things with the video in terms of just turning on like turning off the pre-show stuff and making mm-hmm. you know like and uh and he uh called uh did the calls to stage because there were two the alcindoro and the musetta entered later in the in the sequence um but that was that was it i mean mike uh uh, he had other things he was worrying about, but, but in terms of what his calling score was, though, that was what was in it. That's amazing. And they, did they communicate a lot together or were they pretty like, sorry, was Mike on headset with the video director or yeah, were I they? He was, but the video director, I got to say like, that was a, <laughs> the amount of calls that he had to make would have made it very hard for anybody to get a word in edgewise so um the video director and the 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 the, it was a four camera shoot and the uh, one one unmanned camera three manned cameras the um he had some people that were he had the the person that was pressing the button and then he was calling it and then he had uh we hired a chorus member from san diego opera to be on book because Paul didn't read music. So she could be on book and say, you're here, you're here, you're really close to this call so that she could wow. give countdowns like you have 10 seconds until you need to shoot, until you need to cut to me. Um, so she had the shot list put in the score and he had the shot list like in libretto form, basically. Um, wow. And that's how they communicated. Because it was so extensive for him, once I had finalized the shot list, I never spoke to him unless I was talking to him the next day after looking at the dailies, because I didn't feel like it was fair to try to get in there and be like, hi, hi, I know you're calling like 47 cues, but can you just listen to me for a second about this thing? No, I, I just, I felt like he and Pat, who was on book for him and his crew, just, they needed to find their own rhythm with it. Um, and I had given them everything that I could give them. And so it was just about them slowly rehearsing the shot list and making sure they understood exactly what I was talking about. But they were in a trailer all by themselves way over on the other side of the parking lot. So um, they were sort of isolated. That's amazing. Have you worked on movies or film shoots or anything like that before? Like I would have no idea to come up with a call list of what I, I guess I could be like, this is the main singer right now, focus on them. But did you have experience with that prior to this? Uh, vaguely, not not really, a little bit. I, I did some dance films when I was dancing and directed a couple of dance films. And I was, I was, I was married for a few years to a video director. So I, I didn't really, you know, you, you pick up stuff when you're married to somebody. So yep, I our husbands know like that. that. <laughs> um, but then I also was, uh, when Moby Dick, Moby Dick was filmed for great performances, um, and uh, that was in San Francisco Opera, and Lenny couldn't be there for those performances, so I was, and uh, that was actually when we were doing uh, Butterfly in Santa Barbara. Um, but uh, so I sort of learned, like, because I had long conversations with the the video director for the great performances shoot, and so I I kind of learned his lingo just based on the fact that I had to talk to him about what needed to be seen, and so I pulled from all of that stuff when this came up here. Were you able to decide where the cameras were placed in the first place? Or was that something that you worked with? Production? He had a, he had a, a placement. It was, it was a sort of a last minute thing because we had this idea of where they'd be placed. And then he showed up, of course, way before any of us got there on the very first day of tech. And then he had already sort of placed them. And so then there was one roving camera that we had to kind of 
put in a place that he would, we had to compromise really hard on that because I didn't want, you know, we had two rows of high price donors who were in the first two rows. Um, I didn't want a camera in front of any of their windshields. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had to move that camera much further off to the side than he originally wanted. But the advantage, what happened was that then he found that we could get these really cool, sharp angle shots that actually in some of the group sequences made it look like they were sitting all sitting right next to each other when they were really like oh, wow. apart from each other. So it ended up actually being good, but it, I, there was a period of time there where, where he was like, this is never going to work. This is going to look awful. And I'm like, they cannot be in front of the $10,000 donor. <laughs> You're not putting it there. So, you know, it just, it, it was, it was a little bit of a compromise, but no, we knew that the, the, the one that was just fixed wide angle and the, the other two besides the Rover were going to be sort of center stage right next to each other. One was going to shoot this way. One was going to shoot this way. And then the Rover would kind of get this sort of deeper angle. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it, it, it took us not that long to actually figure out where they needed to go. How did that affect your staging of it in rehearsal? It didn't affect it at all in rehearsal. It affected really? it once we got into tech and, um, like just figuring out like, wow, that's way too far downstage for that camera to be able to really effectively get you or, got it. you know, the camera's not going to be able to pick you up from these stairs. So why don't you move forward a little bit? So, you know, it, I don't think I... I don't think I thought about it. I actually honestly don't think I thought about it enough in the original rehearsals. Like if I had gone back and done this again, I would have, I would have insisted on knowing what the angle of the cameras were when I went into staging rehearsals so that mm -hmm. you know, not that things can't change, but at least so that I could start to think about what these different cameras were looking at. Um, and, and I think there are a few things that I could have easily altered early on if I had been thinking in that mode, but I mean, you know, what director thinks in that, you know, you don't think You've about never the fact done it before. Yeah. Well, and that you don't think about the fact that 90% of the people coming to see the show are only watching this on a screen. And then you get into the parking lot and you pull your car back four rows and you go, right. Nobody's going to watch this stage. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, but if this was also new, you know, I, it's just, we were just sort of learning as we went. What I did hear from Wendo, which was kind of amazing, is that oh, when did you guys, the show started at like 7.30 and you had people lining up at like 4.30 to get in? Yes. Even oh, though they yes. already had tickets. It was, can I just tell you how amazing that night was? So I got there. Um, I didn't watch opening night from the, I had watched both dress rehearsals in a car in the parking lot. And I just really wanted to watch. I just wanted to be part of the whole experience. I didn't want to be isolated in my car during the show. So I wandered around backstage through the show. Um, but I, so I parked in the, in the parking lot for the, for, for the crew and performers. And so I'm, I'm pulling around and it, you know, you drive around this corner and then you drive past the whole parking lot to get to the crew parking lot. Mm -hmm. and so I'm driving, I turn the corner and I'm like, what is going on? oh my god like I was there an hour and a half early and they were already letting people in and it was already I would say half full because wow. people wanted good seats not thinking about the fact that we would have all of these screens yeah they I just, wouldn't assume it, that right exactly they just lined up and they and we had we oversold we oversold on the first night we had over 500 cars there and I just the 
so I, I was backstage a bunch and I was just sort of wandering around in the parking lot. And basically what I was doing is as the golf cart would drive by with the singers, I would like wander along with it and just talk to them about how they were feeling. <laughs> like this was my MO. And, but, but so I didn't really see it fill up and it started to get a little bit dark. And I just, you know, I'd seen it coming around the corner and it was so like, I got all choked up about it because I just got chills. That is so cool to think about. And then I walked around the corner and Ed Walensky, he's our, he's their PR marketing guy. And um, he was standing there taking pictures. So I thought, okay, it's fine that I step out from around the stage. Like whatever, we're in a parking lot. It doesn't matter. So I walk around and apparently as I'm walking, turning the corner to like, take a look at the audience, all of the screens put up on it, like honk if you're ready for opera. And so 500 <laughs> cars are like, honk, honk. <laughs> I started crying. It was just like, I, you know, and I was standing there with Ed and I said, Edward, people are starved for this. We're starved for it. I mean, this mm -hmm. is insane, you know, and, and it's just, and 33% of their ticket buyers had never bought a ticket to the opera before. 33? 33%. Can you believe that? Yeah. That is amazing. Are starved for live experiences or just get out of the house and go somewhere like my parents are like yeah we drove uh drove to arizona today and i'm like why they're like because we haven't driven that street before like, just like yeah we found a new drive. road on the map that we hadn't driven so uh we're in arizona and i'm like this is weird <laughs> yeah people, Some people just arizona they have to get Some out people. of the house. You got to do something. You got to, you know, I'm yeah. eating lunch in the parking lot because I can't eat inside. And I just, we like, right. well, do something. And it's, yeah, and it's like, you just, you're just, but I, I think, you know, beyond that, because I think that's a very real thing, right? But I also think there's just this like starvation for human connection and just being in this giant group of people, even though they're all in their little pods, they're in their cars. There was something about like, you would see people like, you know, like flashing their lights at friends who would turn around and get up in the windows and be like, hey, they're, <laughs> they're texting they each other. And, and it's yeah. And it was just, it just felt like this huge, weird, silent party. But I think that people just they see this opportunity to go and do some weird thing they've never tried before if with a group of people and they think mm -hmm. this is something we can do right now. We are doing this, you know, wow. and it just it 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 made me so because I've been, I, f I felt so sort of desperate and hopeless about the state of the arts recently <laughs> and just like, you know, Haven't performing arts and yeah. do we, I mean, does anybody really care about us and, you know, all of that. And then I saw that and I thought, people care about us. People know that this is something that they want. They just don't know how to help. They, they yeah. don't know how to help. And that's what I, I really honestly think that's more of it, that it's like they don't know, they don't understand the straits that we're all in. And they, they just, but that doesn't mean that they don't, recognize the importance of of gathering and and that's i think what i learned so much about with bohem that is so amazing that's i can't believe 33 percent. i mean that's huge and when linda told me that they were lining up so early it was like you said you're just like people want to get together they want to see live performance like they want the to fact that they brought picnics and then they're sitting in their cars because they couldn't get out of their cars like that was one of the big things it's like that's you get out of your car you must be traveling to the bathroom that's what I was they wondering. Had, How did they yeah. do like bathrooms and stuff? Because I they had a whole line of it was a big socially distanced porta potties, and so <laughs> people, you could get out of your car. You had to have a mask on. You could not be walking in the parking lot without a mask on. And then, because I remember my cousin came 
uh, down from Portland to see it. And, um, and so I like wandered back through the parking lot at some point to, to find her and I got stopped, you know, and, and I mean, I didn't mind. I was, you know, I was like, I'm the director. I just need to go see this one person. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm um, but I got stopped by people. They were like, are you going to that? Are you heading back to your car? And so, and then when I was walking back, they'd be like, ma'am, you can't stop here. You need to either be going to the bathroom or going back to your car and I mean they were like on it they were not they were round and determined to not have this be a, a spreader event there there was no reason for it because everyone was in their cars that is excellent yeah it was pretty great way to go San Diego seriously aces guys aces I was just so pleased that's amazing we need to get other people on board yeah. we'll be uh now that we've talked forever on this one not that I want to cut us off, but I do want to talk about your podcast, Words First yeah. Talking Text and Opera. You have 20, 20, 22 episodes out? Yeah, 20 episodes, two bonus episodes that were very time specific. The others are, are long form interviews, but then I, I, I put out two when uh, that were right next to when pieces were coming out online. So I, want, I, I wanted to make sure I was advertising. Right. Um, so how yeah. did this come about? What was your inspiration for this? Pandemic project. You know, I, I just, I, I realized that what I was really missing, like I, I miss rehearsals. I miss directing. I miss doing stuff like that. But what I was really missing was creative conversation. Just being in a room with people that like liked the stuff I liked and talked about the stuff I talked about. And, and, and I realized also that, I mean, I've been a little bit interested in writing my own work. I, I, who knows if that will ever happen, but it's just something that I, I, I toss around with, you know, I bat it around like a cat once in a while. And, and so I thought, well, you know, librettists never, no one ever talks to librettists. Like it, 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 with standard works, can you even name the librettists half the time? Half the time I have no. to go look in the book and be like, Oh, I don't know. that Right. Person. Even new works, it's composers that you right, hear about. Always the composer. And that's great. It should, I mean, we should be celebrating the composers, but I just started getting interested in, I mean, the words come first. The, the librettist writes the words and hands them off. And, and I got really interested in these people that inspire composers to write music. I mean, surely there, there should be some interest in this. And so I just started, I didn't know if anybody would want to talk to me. I thought I would do like 10 of them and it'd be, you know, one of those little short lived things that was fun. And that's yeah. Great. When, when I was like, Cindy, we're starting a podcast. She's like, yeah, but who are we going to talk to? Something <laughs> no. Episodes later, she's got a whole list of people. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the thing I think, right? Don't you, it's like, you start and you're like, eh. and then the more you get into it, the more you're like, oh, you know who we should talk to, you know, and it's just, that's yeah. what sort of happened. And, you know, the more that I started paying attention to contemporary opera, the more I realized there were all these people that were writing. I mean, at first, I just wanted to interview the big, you know, the Gene Shears, the Royce Fabrics, the the, Martinez, mm -hmm. the people who've written a ton. And, and then I started thinking, like, no, why shouldn't I be interviewing Richard Wesley, who just wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, uh, Central Park Five? Like, mm -hmm. OK, so he's written three operas. Only one of them's ever really been produced. Like, but this I is still doing that one, though. Because uh, yeah. because we worked with Long Beach Opera for so long, right. I went right. and saw the Central Park Five, and yeah, it it was very impressive. Not just the whole production value, which I was watching, but like right. the stories and the way they told them and the way they talked and the way they interacted with like their parents and stuff was excellent. Yeah, he's and well, here's the thing, and this is when I it, I when I interviewed him, I was like, okay, now I know what my my mission is. Um, he's a playwright, 
lived in Harlem in the 60s, went to Howard University. Like he he wrote and then moved to Hollywood in the 70s and worked for Sidney Poitier writing all of the black exploitation comedies in the 70s. Like this man uh-huh. has serious pedigree. Like he's got serious plus like his his uh, like up close and personal view of the civil rights movement was amazing to talk about. And especially just like after it was right after George Floyd and and that I interviewed him and he just it was it was the most fascinating conversation and yes the writing the libretto that was a huge part of it we talked about that but I just thought like you're a really interesting guy and I'm really excited that I get to have this to put this record down of what you've done in your life and why it was important to write an opera and so this is where I've gone and now so I finished a season I did I thought 20 episodes was a good season for me and I wanted to take the holidays off sort of and um (laughs) <laughs> I take the holidays off. That's hilarious. Um, and, uh, <laughs> it's like, when have I ever done that? Ever? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but uh, but then I started thinking, like, I I wanted to start talking to singers and conductors about words and what words mean to them. Hmm. I've been doing these little mini interviews. I don't know how they're going to weave into my season next year because of the, I've got four interviews lined up now for like full long long form interviews. But I I want to talk to this season. I'm still talking to librettists because I find them infinitely fascinating. They're writers. Writers are cool. Um, in a dorky, nerdy sort of way, they're cool. Um, it's right up my alley. But uh, but I want to talk to dramaturgs and I want to talk to uh, people who are running uh, composer librettist programs. And I want to talk to, um, I want to talk to historians who know a lot about the Ponte or know a lot about, you know, whatever. And so I've been sort of branching out a little bit more and thinking like, I, I named my podcast words first talking text and opera I didn't call it like chats with librettists so it gives Absolutely. me the opportunity to sort of uh, open up a little bit and and talk to I mean talk to more people just about just making sure it's a words forward it's a text forward conversation um I'm loving it I love it I had no idea I was going to love it but it's just I get so excited every time I have an interview I'm like <laughs> Right. That's that's why we're a hundred and something in because like you start talking to people and they're so passionate about what they do and everyone's story is different yet the same. Like, yeah, we have yet to talk to a person who's like, yeah, I just kind of did theater because like my parents said I should and I kind of stuck here. And everyone's like, oh, my God, like when I was five years old, I wanted to do this and I saw this show and oh, my God. And it's just (laughs) so energizing. Well, I just think like, yeah, when you when you start talking to a whole bunch of other like geeky weirdos like yourself, right? It's like you yeah. just it's like I'm just like gathering them and it's like come into my clubhouse. Let's all talk about this weird stuff. Exactly. It, it, it feels like it, it feels like conversations that we should be having right now, especially when we're not actually able to just have these impromptu rehearsal based conversations like we should be talking about art all the time and 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 the making of it and the nitty-gritty of it and um i just i i started it off as this just project because i was bored and and it truly has become something that i feel incredibly passionate about which is it's exciting and i you know i see whenever i talk to other podcasters it's exactly stays exactly what you say like it's the same thing right like you just you're like you know i like having this voice and being able to amplify others it's cool right and to give other people that voice to to tell their story because how many people know the story of the guy who wrote 
um, Central Park Five. Like nobody probably knows his story. Right. Yeah. He just wrote an autobiography last year. Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What what article about Central Park Five talks about this autobiography that is available about this guy that wrote for Sidney Poitier? What? Nobody. And so I'm like, well, you know what? Over here, we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and now we we're talking about it. Yeah, we're exactly. helping spread the word. Yeah. Especially since like I saw that one. I don't always get to see the new works and all because I'm usually so busy, but I was like free one weekend and I'm still friends with a number of people over there. And I was like, yeah, let me go. I'm going to go see it. Yeah. And I, I sat there by myself and it was like an earlier show and I had just uh-huh. like driven from work. And so my dinner was a glass of wine and this massive cookie in the lobby during intermission. Perfect. And um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I watched the show and it was, it was stunning. So yeah. that's awesome. I'm, I'm a little jealous do. that you got to see it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, I, I don't even go watch that many shows as a theater person. I'm usually just too busy, but for some reason I forget why, but like, I was really excited about that one. And, yeah. <laughs> you find also though like I'm too I get really busy too and it's hard for me to get to shows but do you find also that you just get overly critical of stuff that doesn't matter when you're in shows do you ever yes. like are you overly critical of as like as a technical director I'm like I don't understand why the lighting <laughs> is doing that like, <laughs> yeah exactly like, like, you know it's, it's, it's like I, I always I'm I always looking at sight lines and being like did you really have to stage that over there like, <laughs> like or some there's some artistic things like Donald Trump is in this show and there's just I was like the whole play is kind of a heavier more dramatic and then they threw him in and I feel like they went way too like comical and ridiculous Uh, yeah 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 not quite sure if I really liked how that worked with everything I get you have to make it a little more lighthearted, otherwise the whole show would be heavy but you have to go so political and And I, I think it's so but it's so hard to just sit and let it wash over you because you know all the tricks. <laughs> like, you know or are you trying to figure out what the tricks were? Right. And, and exactly. I knew the director and I knew box office and I knew, like, I knew a lot of the production team and I'd worked in that venue and I knew what was going on backstage and how much room they had. And so, like, I knew all of that stuff. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see why they did it, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always find that so hard. Just. Uh, Matt, I think hates going to see shows with me because I like will just grip his arm or yeah. like switch or like if if a light cues off, I'm like twitching and he's just like stop touching me. <laughs> Poor Matt, so, get I smack. So my husband's name is Matt too, and I I smack him. <laughs> I'll smack him like, and it's it's an involuntary thing. It's not because I'm actually like hitting him for a reason. It's just like I see something. I'm like, what? You know, smack <laughs> him on the arm. He's like, what are you doing? Like, that was awful. Did you see that? I'm also so used to talking during tech to give notes and talk to people that when we're watching a show, sometimes I'll talk and he's like, stop it. And I'm like, I'm just, (laughs) I'm not used to watching shows without working on them. (laughs) I'm a terrible audience member. I am the audience member that I hate when I'm like in in the opening night. I'm always like, shut up. (laughs) <laughs> that's me <laughs> why are you taking notes on your phone because i gotta right? tell the people backstage what they're doing wrong <laughs> you guys are funny oh, i don't think i take notes but i do think shows yeah, but are you're very... busy calling the show i'm busy watching <laughs> scene changes and making sure they're going right and oh what happened that that didn't work right what happened backstage why was that off yeah, see, that's why, right, though, I think Stacy and I are you. You're there, like making it happen, and and you know, I think for for Stacy and I, it's like 
we're sitting there we can't do anything about it when it falls apart until yeah. we have a moment to like go it's just I, it's horrible i mean i i just it, whenever i watch a train wreck happen on stage which admittedly doesn't happen very often thank god but when it does <laughs> And you're sitting there and you're like, I can do nothing right now except take the note. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that and during sucked. intermission, I'm going backstage and going to be like, what the fuck, guys? Like, that worked exactly. perfectly fine during rehearsal. Totally. What happened? And how do we fix it before tomorrow night? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I just think when I'm watching shows that aren't mine, that it's insanely quiet. Even if it's a big oh, opera, it's the... insanely quiet because I don't have seven people talking in my ear. Yeah. God, I never thought about that. That's so true. And you yeah, don't know I'm what's just... going on backstage. You're missing all the background exciting I stuff. Can't, I can't hear any of the calls. It's completely quiet. And I, I honestly feel like even in a huge opera or a huge musical or whatever, I'm just like, it's so quiet right now. Also because I'm so used to being so close to singers. Right. Especially in like rehearsal room and stuff. Like I'm used to these operatic singers singing six feet away from my face, you know? And then I get into a theater and I'm like, you're so far away and I can't hear anything in my head. Like, it's just really weird right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I'm missing half of the show I'm at the moment. missing your voices. There's no voices. Yeah. <laughs> I miss all the voices in my head. It's just really quiet. Yeah, it's it's... I don't have the urge to take notes. I just have the urge to hear more noise. <laughs> but when you were talking about that urge to be around people and to be around the nerdy people, I want to talk a little bit about balancing the stage and this oh, yeah. directors, opera directors group that has formed. I don't remember. You guys, I believe, started before COVID. Kind no, of like, it was also no, it was all during COVID. Project. It actually started. Um, it started as a, a group of directors. I actually came on sort of second wave group of directors. That uh, it was a it was a very small group of like four or five directors who essentially I think were just getting together to to bitch. <laughs> like it was just like you know I mean, we have nothing to do. Let's <laughs> just you know whatever. And and so um, then they said you know we should see if there's other directors that want to do this and so then i got an email on that wave that was like hey we've been meeting once a week we're just you know talking about the arts and talking about we also had been talking about um agma because the soloist coalition had started and we were just curious oh, about what was going on with the union and it just you know it just felt like a really good time to sort of reassess things that you never get to think about when you're in the midst of just having a career and, and you probably um, never get to really talk to a group of other directors about it well, totally. I mean, that's the huge thing is that that like the only time it's only during summer programs when you ever are around <laughs> other directors and then everyone's yeah. so busy that, you know, you might have a beer together once in a while, but you're not really actually hanging out. And mm -hmm. so this became a weekly thing. And then um, then it's just grew from there. And then we started talking about like, maybe this is actually a thing like this shouldn't just be. A bunch of us sitting around you know bitching all the time although that's fun it should be a thing and so we started thinking about like okay what are the what would a service organization for opera specifically opera directors look like and uh we came up with a name for it we came up with some committees that that uh, sort of were we came up with a mentoring program that i mean i i know you you're familiar with and um and I, I, I sort of back. It's it's interesting because then as more people joined, we were able to sort of back into our own. <laughs> that that sounds aggressive. Back into our own corners. We were able to like. <laughs> 
but we were able to just sort of find our niche in the niche in the organization. Like I moved into sort of the communications media and sort of dealt with the LinkedIn and Facebook and and kind of helping with that. And um, I, I go to governance most of the time, which just sort of does the overall. But but it's this cool organization where there are people like Paul Curran and Peter Cazares who are members and. Thaddeus Strasberger, and then there are mid-career people like me and Crystal Manage, and then there are our new young directors who are still just ADing, who haven't really done their own work yet, or who've done like student shows. Um, that are uh, so it's this wonderful swath of people who are all interested in making opera, and um, and being able to talk about specifically what's going on with directors. And you're right, like totally like a bunch of nerdy people talking about nerdy director stuff, which I just <laughs> love with my whole heart. And and I, I'm so proud of, I, I want to give a big shout out to Stephanie Havey actually, because she sort of, she took the ball and ran with it like, whoa, she put together a website. She just, she mm -hmm. delegated. She's, she's been the person who really, when the rest of us were like, I'm too busy. I can't like Stephanie was like, all right, I'll pick up the slack. We'll do it. Like she's just been the workhorse. And I'm, I'm so I just, I have so much respect for her just sort of plowing ahead with it because we've all just sort of like hung on and um, it's, you know, it's going through growing pains right now, I have to say, because, you know, we're trying to roll out a new website where, um, uh, you know, we're, we're going into the second thing of our mentorship. We're trying, we're just trying to figure out exactly how to move forward because, you know, how do we start, there's my dog. Um, <laughs> That I could probably hear, uh, but we're, we're trying to figure out how we uh, how do we start actually bringing in enough money that we can pay for just it's it's not a big overhead, but you know there's there's a little bit of overhead that happens when when you have a group that's like that, and and so there's these ch these challenges that we've come up to now where we actually need to actually take the next step, but you know it's a big group now, so this the, we've got all this consensus conversation happening, but just the fact that from June until April might have been late April I don't know April May June it was somewhere in there from there to now like this is where we are that we have this group we have this page we have people who are contacting us about being interested in our group this feels like an accomplishment and I feel like if nothing else once we go start back to actually you know doing real work like actually making opera on a stage I have all these people now who I feel comfortable calling and being like, this thing is happening and I don't understand what's going on. And have you ever experienced this at this company? You know, and I just feel like now I have this network of, of other directors who I would feel totally comfortable asking these kinds of questions. And I hope other directors feel that way about me because we need to be connected with each other. I mean, there's certainly, you know, enough creative thought to go around for all of us to be making work. And, and I, I'm a little in love with the fact that we put this thing together. So I also, I always have that, Twin and I talk about it a lot, that we have each other. And yeah. I can call her if there's an issue and she can call me. And being on the tech side and her being a stage manager, I can go to her for stage manager notes, but she also, like, knows other things. Like, you know. We train together and we work together. And so like we can go back and forth and she understands what I'm talking about, the technical stuff or scene changes. And I understand her paperwork and calling and all that, but not everybody has that. And yeah. so it's great that people can get together and, 
and talk about those things and come up with stuff because why should we be reinventing the wheel every show? I mean, somebody's Seriously. already called this show, unless it's a brand new work, but somebody's already built that wagon and was like, oh, this worked, this didn't work. Like, why do right. I need to figure it out every single Somebody time? else has already built the barber's chair that sends people to their <laughs> yes. death. It has happened before, and somebody out there knows how that trick works. Yes, and, and how know, not the... to kill people, and what they did wrong, <laughs> and what broke, and how they did something. Like, and what it's happens already been when done. the slide is too steep. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's great that you could just reach out and be like, hey, who's done this? And like a dozen people will probably be like, oh, yeah. 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 And, and I story. think it's a, it's a good reason. It's an important resource. And and just something that we, I think, realized in the course of just sort of bitching with each other. We're like, wait, this doesn't exist right now. And, and that was a kind of, that was a good realization. What I've awesome. loved is... Uh, being able to put names to faces and a lot of people, a lot of directors where I've, I know of, yeah. and sometimes you find them a little, little bit intimidating until all of a sudden you're in this like zoom meeting with like five directors, you know, and all of a sudden you're like chatting with them and now they're no longer intimidating or now they're no longer like this name that's out there, you know, that's well, and like, it's, I think the more names. you're around directors, the more you realize that all of us have a little bit of a imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> really, Kind yeah, lovely. Like when you're when you're standing next to a director having a conversation with them, and you totally revere them, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, well that sucked," and then I did this other stupid thing, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh, thank you, thank <laughs> you, <laughs> you're a normal person. You also have insecurities." <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's so amazing. I love it, and I have to actually say sorry to all my SMA people. I enjoy being part of Balancing the Stage actually almost more than the SMA because really? you guys are opera centric. The yeah. SMA, I'm around all these stage managers, but hardly any of them do opera. And so though I'm like, okay, we're stage managers, I feel like I don't connect with them. And Balancing the Stage, even though you're director based and I do some, you know, I like to do some AD and stuff, but like you're opera people. And so I feel like I just have this like yeah. better connection and I know people and I know the operas you're talking about. And I know, you know, this like really difficult death sequence, you know, like I feel so much more connected. And so I've loved going to events and just chatting, you know, like we spent, <laughs> we were just talking about the holiday party yesterday, you know, different right. opera shows that we've done and, and, I forget if someone was talking about like a Tosca where something horrible happened and half of us knew that show or about, you know, so-and-so fell in the pit and we all kind of like knew that person they were talking about because right. it's such a small world, you know? Yeah. So. And that's the thing also is I think, you know, it was one of the reasons why the, the mentorship program was so important to us is, is that, you know, directors, and, and this is actually another thing that has come up with uh, words first with my podcast is that directors and librettists, are kind of in the same boat. Opera directors and librettists are kind of in the same boat. They all, all the training that is available to them is through theater. So they can learn to be a lyricist. They can learn to be a director for theater, but there's just very little training out there. It's, it's starting. I mean, there's now librettist programs to teach you how to write actual opera libretto. There are now directing programs that are opera centric, but it's very, very small. It's, it's, it's moving slowly. But if you actually want to direct opera or you want to write libretti, those are not things that are necessarily just naturally, oh, well, then you go here, you know, and I, I think mm -hmm. that starting 
this program where people who actually do this niche thing, this directing of opera versus just directing generally, it is very different than directing theater. And, and, and just, I mean, just like stage managing, it's very different stage managing an opera than it is stage managing theater. I mean, it's, there are different things. The way that it is put together is different. And, but I feel like we're trained, even I went to CCM, which has an opera program, right. we're all still trained how to do it the theatrical way. You know, right. like I wasn't necessarily trained to do paging calls. I wasn't trained, you know, to do these things that you do in opera because we are just learned to stage manage. And that meant like learning it on the fly, too. And then you get Absolutely. into the opera situations and you're like, wait a minute, what? Since <laughs> like, <laughs> my butterfly story where I was like, oh, I'm all prepped for the show. I know what the scenes look like. I know what the props look like. Well, you know, and I wasn't like, OK, but I don't know butterfly. And I was never taught that that's what I needed to know on day one exactly. until I actually experienced it. Yeah. Because 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 who says that to you, right? I mean, you yeah. just don't have anybody that's saying that to you. And I, I just, I feel like this was why we started this mentoring program. Because we're like, people, we just need to, you know, let's let's teach people how to, like, prep a score. And how to, like, you know, prepare a, 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 a chorus cheat sheet. And a, you know, all oh the stuff God, that you're Oh, my God, taking the 30-minute counts? Um, 30 seconds. 30, 30 seconds, second not 30 counts. minutes. 30 seconds? Like... I forget we were at some Long Beach opera show and, and I'm a technical director. I don't even do that shit. But like Sydney and Darlene were both behind and couldn't do it. And we were running five million things at once. And they're like, here, do this. And I was like, that can't be difficult. And it was like four hours to do like uh -huh. <laughs> I was like, I don't I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I don't even know where the cuts are. Where are they in this music? Oh, my God. Yeah. It, but no, I never even knew that it was a thing until Cindy started doing it in opera oh, yeah. i never Dallas, even heard about it dallas opera they do 15 second counts oh my god i did 15 seconds for handmaid's tale because it was just so complicated yeah. that we needed that 15 second count yeah. yeah but we need that training and it just doesn't exist so i love that you guys are that you're doing it thanks yeah i i'm 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 really pleased that it's continuing and uh, i look forward to seeing sort of what happens with us in the next six months or so as we try to navigate these next steps when i know in, in membership we've been talking about uh what is it going to look like post covid if that's yeah. a thing you yeah. know like right now we're meeting weekly oh God, and we're doing I all these things thing at some point please be a thing at some point <laughs> yeah <laughs> but we're aware once shows open up again like we're not going to be able to eat, eat meet weekly you know like we're not going to have that availability and we're not all going to have the same availability but also we're not going to have as much people attending things because everyone's going to be working again. So, you know, right. All these and, yeah, we've, been, we've been talking about that in communications media too. Just like, you know, does it, does it make sense for us to send out like, you know, that's why we got a co-chair. Like now we have a co-chair so that, you know, if, if one of us is working, maybe the other person can attend and, you know, it just, how, how do we do this by email? Is there like an email sort of, is there an email form that we can just fill out with information, send it to each person in the committee? Like, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, you have to start thinking, about like the fact that we will at some point go back to work we will right it doesn't feel like it but uh, the vaccines just got in a truck today so i feel like you know it's gonna happen something's gonna happen at some point in the next six to eight months right and Hope and so i i just you know we have to start thinking about like okay well what does that look like for those of us who've started things <laughs> that we don't necessarily <laughs> want to you know put away um how how do we how do we navigate that yeah, it's awesome. Well, we're getting close to time, but
but mm. we do want to ask if you have any twin stories. I do. I've brought a twin story. <laughs> oh. Okay. So, well, I have a specific story that goes with it, but uh, so I, I actually grew up, uh, I was a dancer and I grew up with a set of twins, um, Marie and Maggie, Marie Robertson and uh, Maggie Deathrow. And they're these, oh, just the most amazing, tiny little dance teachers one taught tap and jazz and one taught modern and they were um they were my dance teachers as as a child so I grew up with them uh, and when you're around them for a while like when I was a kid I could tell them apart I could large it, it occurred to me as I was getting older that I could largely tell them apart because one of them was in modern dance clothes and one of them was in tap clothes <laughs> who was who um but <laughs> if they walked into the tap class and that was the, that was Marie but if they walked into the modern class that was Maggie um but they do I mean you know they have slightly different their, their voices are different when you're talking to them and after a while but I remember when I came back from college this is this is the actual story. So I hadn't seen them for a number of months and I came back from college and I was so excited to go back to dance arts and see everybody, all my teachers and my friends and stuff. And I walked in the door and one of them was at the counter and I just, I was at first, I was totally sure it was Marie and I was like, Hey, and I, in that moment of saying, hey, realized that I had absolutely no idea if it was Marie or Maggie because I hadn't <laughs> been around them for a while. And so it just took me this. And, and, and in terms of the way they look, the way they sound, the way they talk, the way they deal with life, different. The way they look. Yeah, it was <laughs> and I was and I was 18 and I was trying. I didn't want to like I just I had no idea. And um, and she knew I know she knew it was Marie. She, I know she knew because uh, um, the first thing she said, she was like she saw me because I said, hey, and I kind of stopped in this weird like limbo. And she was like, Katora, Maggie's going to be so excited to see you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, you and know, just, this is you awkward know, for me. It's normal for you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> she, she just, she saw it in my eyes. She knew it in that moment. But in that, you know, in that split second, I felt like the biggest jackass because I was like, how could I not? I've known these people since I was eight years old. I've known them for 10 years. I should know who, and I just felt so stupid. But she just, she picked it right up. I just, I was so. <laughs> like thankful and now now it doesn't even you know it it's uh, it, it, now it's like I've known them now I'm much older and I've known them for longer than 10 years um <laughs> known them for like 30 years um, but uh but now it's like if I don't walk in and I'll be like Maggie she'll be like Marie Ah, okay. You know, and it's like, it's just, I don't feel as crappy if I, you know, because if they haven't opened their mouth and, you know, it's like their back is half turned, like whatever, you know, but, uh, but yeah, they're still some of my favorite people in the, in the entire world. And um, that's my twin story. That's a wonderful one. I love it. <laughs> I feel like uh, we obviously grew up together. And so people who met both of us and grew up with both of us usually yeah. it's different than like we went to different colleges so people knew me for a number of months before they met cindy or vice right. versa so they already have that connection so as soon as they meet the other one they're like you're not quite safe. yeah but yeah if you grew up parallel like it's it's a, it's a little different 
It, it is because I, and I think that's absolutely the, the whole case with Maggie and Marie is that both of them having grown up with like literally grown up next to these two women who are, are so similar in just in the way that they look and the way that they dress and the way that they, you know, that I, I think that I was always aware that they both had, had these qualities. I think that if I had known Maggie and not Marie at all, and then I'd met Marie much later, then I would totally experience the difference in a very different way. I think that's, yeah. that's so true. Uh, yeah. Cause people rarely get us confused now because we just don't spend much time together. Like by the time I go out to New York once or twice a year, if even mm. like, Cindy's already been working with Andrew Osley for two years by the time I physically meet him. So he already knows who Twin is. Right. Right. And the other one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you are the other one. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have invited you to the party, though, because then we could have had like similar avatars running around the little space together. Yeah, way to go. I'm going to talk to Andrew about that. You know, I yeah, come out <laughs> and do one show with him and suddenly I don't get invited <laughs> to any parties. <laughs> poor andrew <laughs> poor Ed, thank you so much for being on this podcast it's been so awesome to learn about bohem and about your podcast and oh, about thank you i know Bouncing i saw all the posts on bohem but now i'm gonna go back and look at them even more yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah san diego's doing a drive-in opera because uh pops the pacific opera company also did a drive-in right. they they did it's Bowen, but they do like a hipster Bowen. But I think they did that oh, as a drive right. So I was kind of watching yeah. both of them kind of similar time frames. <laughs> yeah, it's there were several companies actually that sort of took that plunge kind of all at the same time. Like Phoenicia Opera Festival in New York did it. And then I think didn't uh, Santa Barbara just actually did a drive-in Carmen. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Santa Barbara did. Yeah. Which there's not a lot of big just open drive-in space in Santa Barbara. So I'm interested in where uh -uh. they did it there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're right there is no spaces but it's cool congrats it cool. it's cool it's a good idea um, yeah thank you both awesome. this was really fun Yay, thank you so, so much my dog I'm gonna... barked your dog barked cindy you need a dog we've already gone over this yes <laughs> working on it <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you so much i'm sure i'll see you soon in more balancing the stage things but thank you katori it was really awesome yeah avatars thank you so running around much awkwardly yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks bye. bye bye thank you for listening to today's podcast for more visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on itunes or google play music you can also interact with us on facebook or instagram at twinstalktheater title music dance macabre is provided by kevin mcleod of incomtech.com under creative Commons license 3.0